Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and platypuses coming across ducks for the first time and asking, what happened to you? It's Thursday at 3, and you know what that means. It's tea with BBP. What are you guys shaking your heads for? We've never seen a platypus before. Live from Michigan State University. <laughs> it's me, your host, Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BVP, international superstar and diva. One tired diva of SLA. And speaking of platypuses, <laughs> with me with me are my co-hosts who defy categorization, yes, Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. You kids are already saying hi, so I won't even ask you to say hi. Say hi anyway. Hello, everybody, on this beautiful snowy day in East Lansing. Crazy Can snow. Can you believe Crazy. it? Okay, so uh, before, before, just I what? what to say hi. What, you're already talking, Walter, so Hi. <laughs> so you guys... You don't know what platypuses are? I know what a platypus is. Yeah, but I know what a platypus why would he, is. Why, why would a platypus not look at a duck and go, what happened to you? I think it would be the other way around. I think the duck would be like, what? Not from the platypus's perspective. See, well, oh, you're a racist. Oh, wow. Don't you call me racist. You're a platypus racist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm staying out of this one. <laughs> you're a duckacist. <laughs> I love ducks. There's, there there's no go. doubt. I love Do you them. go feed them over here in the river? No, you're not supposed to. I know. But I, I know lots all. of people that do. Okay, you guys, you know, we have an audience out there. They don't want to no. hear you talk about your ducks. Really, they don't. Get your ducks in a row. <laughs> we got to get our ducks in a row and get going here. Yes, we do. Oh, my God. So <laughs> we had quite the adventure this last weekend, didn't we? Yeah. We were at Ohio okay. Foreign Language um, Association meeting. That was fun. Um, so thanks to Lucas Hoffman and all the board at the OFLA. It was a pretty good conference. It was a big crowd. I gave a keynote to what was like 500 people that Friday morning. It was pretty big. Um, well organized, so run ran well, and good things going on, and a lot of interaction with people, and some good sessions and stuff. So, and lots uh, of questions during our show. Yeah, we mm-hmm. had a good show. It was great. We had a really good live audience. Those of you who listened, we had a really good live audience. So, thank you, people of Ohio. A big round of applause! Yay! Yay! All right, can I tell my story now? Because I know people out there are dying to find out what happened to me at the yes, conference. Yes, please tell us. Okay, I'm going to try to give the the Reader's Digest version because. Um, at 2 o'clock in the morning between Thursday and Friday in the hotel room in, in Columbus, Ohio, I woke up with stabbing pains in my abdomen. And I thought, oh, maybe I should go to the hospital. No, I'll wait till the morning. And so I tried to go back to sleep, and I couldn't. Blah, 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 toss and turn. So I go give my keynote in the morning at 1030 in dire pain. Nobody knew because I tried to put on a, a nice face and everything. Gave this keynote in dire pain, then took selfies with people and talked to some people afterwards, answered some additional questions after the keynote and so on. Then I turned to the people and said, okay, now can I go to the hospital? And so, yeah, they took me. So they knew ahead of time. That yeah, I had told there. them that. I, was, I had texted Lucas and uh, Lucas Hoffman, the president of OFLA. And so they wound up, I went to the hospital and I was there for three, almost three and a half hours. And it turned out I was diagnosed with diverticulitis, people, which Crazy. was not fun. It was horrible. And I'm still on the antibiotics. I will be on until Monday. And the, the pain is finally, today's my first pain-free day. Yay! Excellent. And, but my appetite's down. These antibiotics are killing me. Now I've got that white tongue from, now i got to go get, get another medication to counteract the white tongue from the antibiotics I'm taking. It's like I'm spiraling down people and everything. I'm so tired from <laughs> these medications and lack of sleep. I slept Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday literally all day. Angelica, we so. need to keep hitting him throughout the show to make okay. sure he's. You may awake. have to. You may have to. So, 
If you all don't have a question, call in. Would you at least please, we want you to call in today. Would you at least call in and wish me well because I'm feeling really bad, you guys. And you're lucky. That this was almost going to be tea with Walter and tea with Angelica because I almost was going to not come in today. And because, uh, oh, gosh. And we would have just said, forget about it. Forget about it. No, you that is precisely it. what we would have said. No, no more. more. Not, not today. Um, we have an announcement to make. Um, I want to put a plug in for upcoming conference. Drum roll, everybody. Brrr. The CI Mitten, which Mitten stands for Michigan, of course, for those, those of you out there who don't know, raise your hand and you can see the Mitten, the shape of the lower peninsula of Michigan. So Comprehensible Input CI Mitten is taking place on April 22nd in Saline um, or Saline or Saline or Saloon or I don't know how you, they call it around here. There's a S-A-L-I-N-E in almost every state in the country and everyone pronounces it differently, so... Um, anyway, so that's taking place on April 22nd. Um, you can look for the website if you're in the area or you don't know about it. Check them out. I think they might already close for registration, but you know, you never know. They might let you in. Um, but there's always next year, too. So I will be there and um, talking with people and giving a little address in the morning, I think. And uh, so there's that. April 22nd. Write it down. Okay. Are we ready to start? We're ready to fly. Yes, we ready are. Ready to fly. Okay. Our topic today is bootstrapping, which I'll get into in a minute. And um, no- We need to strap on our boots today. No, Mr. Longiness. No, Mr. Longiness, who texted- Mag What's his name? Um, uh, yeah. Longiness, who said, uh, asked what kind of leather would we need for the show. It's not that kind of show, Longiness. Okay. Um, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about bootstrapping in a moment. Uh, but in the meantime, remember that um, we do have the SLA challenge question coming up. I will give you that question in a few minutes. And the first person to make it to the phones um, with the correct answer wins a prize. Same for the Diva Challenge question. I'll read that question at some point, and you'll have time to call in. And first person who has the correct answer. Um, and none of my questions today relate to bootstrapping, unfortunately. Uh, kind of, sort of, they do. But the Diva question doesn't. I was really good the other day. I got the Diva to tie into the Rolling yep, Stones thing. Yep, yep. All right. Um, phone number this the reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, that's 517-884-4321. Jen, our trusted intern, is on the phone lines waiting for your call. Um, you can tweet us at T with BVP or on if you're on Mixler. Angelica is monitoring the Mixler lines. And Walter has the email and other stuff going on. Email me. So, all right. Again, the number is 517 517- 884-4321. So, Walter, what is bootstrapping? Well, it's what I had to do this morning because it was snowing. And uh, here in Michigan, we had to put on our boots to strap them on. <laughs> and we did it. All right. Let's see. Leather ones, longinus. Okay, well let's 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 talk about <laughs> let's let's talk about bootstrapping and language acquisition. Not, let's not, hear not, about it. Not Walter's dressing habits, Angelica. <laughs> so what does bootstrapping mean in language acquisition? Well, traditionally, and it still refers to this, um, is how learners it was first applied to first language learners, how learners initially, very initially, work their way into the linguistic system. How do they create a grammatical system? Syntax, morphology, all that stuff. When they got nothing, you start with basic. Well, you start with universal grammar, but otherwise you got other. But you got to you got to get through the speech signal somehow, right? To to make your way into the system. How do you do that? What gives them access to creating language in their heads? So I thought this topic was important because it sort of came up indirectly in Ohio last week, and I thought, hmm, I'm going to follow up. 
um, because something I said that actually came up in a Twitter uh, or a tweet, um, which I'll read in a little bit. Um, so I'm going to zero in on uh, uh, bootstrapping uh, in this episode uh, by talking about the role of lexicon, which means vocabulary, right? Lexicon is the store of words in your head. And then also prosody. Um, who knows what prosody is? Angelica Walter, what's prosody? Tell the audience what prosody is. It's the the the, the thing flow. that goes the thing of the, the rhythm way. and pitch yeah. the rhythm and pitch contour mm-hmm. of a speech stream. Correct. Okay, so pitch and rhythm. So we have lexicon, vocabulary, and prosody, which is pitch and rhythm. These elements for both first and second language learners are key to initial bootstrapping. They're absolutely key. They're critical to bootstrapping for a variety of reasons. Okay, so. What I want to start off with is saying is that what learners initially must do um, is isolate meaning from the speech stream. So they hear a blah, 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 and somehow they get to figure out what that means, right? Um, and they do this by trying to find words, words and chunks of things to bootstrap themselves into the grammar. So the suggestion here is that it is, it is the isolation of units of meaning, vocabulary and chunks of language, that give you the stepping stone to create a grammar in your heads. So for example, how is it that a learner's internal system comes to know in Spanish? Those of us who teach Spanish know that verbs have person number endings, right? So you have hablo, hablas, hablamos, hablais, hablan, blah, 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 right? So we know that. Um, before you know that a system has person number endings, you got to have verbs. You got to be able to isolate verbs in the speech stream. Okay, so if I say, Angelica, do you speak Spanish? Very rudimentary. So if I say Walter enseña en MSU, what did you just hear? Walter and MSU. Okay, right. So now what Angelica did is she isolated the things that were clearest to her, but she also did what is typical of language learners, where she po- focused on the pitch elements. Walter. And MSU have the highest pitch elements in that sentence. The next pitch element in that sentence that has higher pitch is enseña. But she couldn't map meaning onto that, right? Um, and so what would happen is, it, as Angelic would hear more sentences in Spanish, she might be able to isolate enseña as a verb and can then map it onto some meaning. So what, so what learners have to do is, is find these units of meaning in the speech stream and then... Um, and then um, uh, figure out a way to, um, to use that information to create syntax and grammar. So how do they do that? They bracket. So bootstrapping means that learners bracket. So Walter and in MSU, let's say Angelica finally breaks that down and hears Walter, and then she also hears NMSU. NMSU is a unit of meaning, but it's not a one word, right? It's actually a prepositional phrase. So at some point, Angelica will get that as a prepositional phrase, and she's bracketed off that segment of speech stream, and she's starting to bootstrap her way into the phrase structure of Spanish. I mean, her brain already knows that phrase structure exists. That's what universal, universal grammar gives you. But she has to uncover the phrases to begin with and uncover the words that build the phrases themselves. And so bootstrapping refers to your ability to Isolate those units, whether they're words or chunks, and build these phrases so that bit by bit you get the grammar and the syntax over time. There was actually a message on the board that, that got taken away about the, I don't know what happened to the phones, but maybe um, Luca will put back up in a minute. We're having some phone issues earlier, people, so I don't know if those got resolved, but we'll see. Um, 
So what happens, though, for learners at the beginning, what makes bootstrapping so interesting and important is that the boundaries between words aren't clear. So when you hear, say something in German, Angelica. Gestern Abend bin ich ins Kino gegangen. Okay, I, th I don't know if I heard, I don't know what words I heard in there. That's just a big speech stream to me, right? So I need to start isolate those words. I don't know what the boundaries of the words are. Okay, so um, how is it that learners find those boundaries? How is it that they segment the speech stream? Um, that's what that's what bootstrapping is about. How do you segment that speech stream and find those boundaries so you can bootstrap yourself into the linguistic system? Okay, um, now of course, what happens in bootstrapping is learners sometimes get things wrong, right? Um, Imagine so, that. Yeah, so learners might segment incorrectly, which is why you get chunks of language and things like that. Um, or you not, may, may not be able to identify what units are. You might categorize them incorrectly and so on. Um, but that's okay because these things work themselves out, work themselves out. Um, but the whole idea about bootstrapping, again, is isolating words and meaningful units of language to get into the linguistic system itself. Now, the question becomes, does teaching help? What do you think? Does teaching help with bootstrapping? I don't know. Can you teach? Can you teach? How do you pronounce that word? Pr pr prosody. Pr say it again. Prosody. That one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might could. I don't know. You might could. You might could teach might prosody. Could. But actually, there's something else that that helps um, second language learners that first language learners don't have access to. And what is that? It is written input. And so what the, the one thing that distinguishes bootstrapping in first and second language acquisition is that first language learners, if they're hearing, we're not talking about signing, if they're hearing, all they have is the speech stream. So they really do have to uncover words. And it's not that hard to do. For example, so Walter says, doggy. And I say, that's not a doggy. That's a kitty. So Walter here, immediately he hears juxtaposed a doggy and a kitty. So he's getting clues right now in my input from the speech stream that there's a a and a a and a doggy and a kitty. So is a part of the doggy or is a something separate because now a appears with kitty. So Walter's getting clues in the input that something's going on here. And so that, that kind of juxtaposition helps Walter as a first language learner start to get um, stuff. But Angelica in my Spanish class, for example, or my English class, has access to written input right away, assuming she's literate. Um, and so um, she will see words isolated. She will see sentences. And so she doesn't have to just rely on oral input um, because I might have a sentence on, on the screen that we're, we're looking at where we're saying, okay, this is our topic today, people. And I put the topic up and all the words are there. Uh, and so the written input can help um, uh, uh, second language learners bootstrap themselves quicker. Um, so this is where reading combined with Oral input in the second language context can be a powerful combination to speed up acquisition compared to oral input alone. Um, and there is a little bit of research on this that was done in the 70s that shows that adolescents and adults are, are quicker at the beginning um, than child second language learners. And um, nobody thought about this back then. I'm reinterpreting the literature. And I think it might be because typically child second language learners don't use written input. They're just learning on the playground. They're learning with their nannies. They're learning with their friends on the street. However, that's how they're, or they're, they're taken to an immersion situation. They're only four years old. And so they gotta, they're basically re re redoing first language acquisition with oral input. Whereas adults and adolescents are getting 
written input at the beginning. So I think that that helps bootstrap them into the system more quickly. So I think one of the reasons we see in the initial stages that adults and adolescents are a little bit faster than child second language learners is because of that written input. I think it gives them a little edge. I don't know in the long run what it does, um, but in the beginning, it may help them. So bootstrapping, again, just refers to the idea of how you get into the linguistic system. How do, you, how do you determine, how do you figure out the components of syntax and grammar? How does your brain do that? It's got to do it through the lexicon. It's got to find meaning and isolate words and how words work. Um, and we can talk. I hope people call in. There's lots of questions from this um, that people should be asking themselves. So please, please, please call in. We want to hear your questions, your comments, your reactions, uh, particularly those of you who work a lot with comprehensible input. I'd like to hear your um, reaction to this idea of bootstrapping because I know a lot of the um, CI approaches uh, use some measure of written input along with the oral input. And so I'd like to hear how you help learners bootstrap. What are the strategies involved that you have that help learners bootstrap themselves into the linguistic system by focusing on meaning? Okay. I have a question. You have a question? I was going to give the SLA challenge question first. Oh. But okay. I can wait. It yeah. hasn't come up yet, so I'll wait. So Keith was asking when you were talking about chunks. Um, he was asking if those are like linguistic thought groups. I don't know if they're like linguistic thought groups, but let me give you an example of Trump. Of chunks. Some chunks. What? I'm about to hurl some chunks here in a minute. <laughs> These antibiotics are killing Please me. Please don't. And if you do, just in the direction of Walter. I will, no of course. Thanks. <laughs> Turn around. That's like, it sounds terrible to say that. <laughs> no, audience, you have to understand these antibiotics. I don't wish them on anybody. They really make you sick. Anyway, um, so an example of a chunk would be do you want to? A child first and second language acquisition where here's things like do you want to go? Do you want to eat? Do you want to sleep? Do you want to play? Do you hear? Do you want to? Do you want to? And then this other thing afterwards. Notice how that the prosody will help a child and a second language learner isolate verbs like sleep, want, eat. I mean, not want, but eat, sleep, drink, and so on. Do you want to drink something? Do you want to eat something? Do blah blah blah. Um, but then what happens at the same time is that do you want to becomes a chunk for that learner. They don't know that it is an auxiliary verb do that carries tense. That you is the subject. Wanna is a contracted form of, of another, of a modal want plus a preposition to. They just hear, do you wanna? And so do you wanna becomes a chunk. And what's interesting about chunks um, is they never go away. Um, in both first and second language acquisition, we work with chunks all the time. They're stored in our mind just like words. And we rely on those for fluency. So when I say, do you wanna in English, I'm not pulling do you wanna as necessarily some do you want to, and I'm contracting. I mean, that's possible, but more likely what I'm doing is I'm pulling down do you wanna as a chunk, inserting into this, this sentence I'm making, and then eat. Do you wanna eat? So they never go away. But at the same time, over the course of time, I've broken it down, so I have do and you and want and to and all those elements are also in my lexicon with all their functions and so on. So um, who is that that asked that question? Keith. Uh, Keith. So Keith, a chunk, a good example of a chunk is do you want to? Those of you who teach Spanish, another one is como se dice. Students have no idea what como se dice means. They just know it means that's how you ask what a word is. Como se dice apple. Como se dice, right? So, uh, uh, so things like that are, are, are examples of chunks. They have no idea what the el individual elements are, and it's just one big word to them. Yeah, and sometimes they'll actually ask it. <laughs> they'll say, como se dice botella? I'm like, would tell you. You just said it. <laughs> no, no, but, but uh, oh, significa. 
¿Qué significa botella? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, what the, what the reason you know that students don't know or learners don't know what that chunk means is I've had learners in the past say things like, ¿Cómo se dice says? Well, dice es says. <laughs> That's what dice <laughs> is. If you, <laughs> you have not isolated dice as a verb that means says. And so, ¿Cómo se dice? All right. Okay. Uh, so that's our stuff on that. Let me give the uh, SLA challenge question um, to people now. Here we go. Uh, since we're talking about verbs, right? Isolating verbs. So here's the question. Learners seem to isolate lexical verbs. Do you know what a lexical verb is, Walter? Here's your MA linguistist coming back to haunt you. Stop it. Don't ask right. me these questions <laughs> on Angelica, the Angelica I'm, has, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Angelica <laughs> next because she has the same background. So, okay, a lexical verb is, is, a, is, is a, a, a verb, a full verb, um, like eat, drink, and sleep. Okay, so learners seem to isolate lexical verbs like eat, drink, and sleep before they get auxiliary verbs like be, have, and can. Is this true or is it false? I know the answer. Learners seem to isolate lexical verbs like eat, drink, and sleep before they get auxiliaries like be, have, and can. True or false? <laughs> Good question. All right, so if you want to win a prize, call in with your answer. Jen is waiting for you on the phone there. Our phones are working, so um, call in and answer that question. All right, so nothing's coming up yet on this topic of bootstrapping, is it? On Mixler or... You guys can call in with any other questions you want. We just want you to call in, please. I have a question that I've been asked on multiple occasions. I'm going to go to the Twitter press in a minute, but go ahead, Walter. Okay. The question is, you mentioned written language, and some people have wondered about whether written language delays the development of oral proficiency because if the written representation of language does not necessarily match what they're hearing, then they tend to adopt the what they see in their own native tongue, in their L1, as opposed to what they're hearing. Uh, and so I wonder if if there's the possibility for the written language actually being detrimental for their developing oral proficiency. Um, so for example, in French, you know, someone, they've heard monsieur, 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 monsieur over and over again, but then they see it written and they say, and they start saying, monsieur, uh, because they've seen it in written form. Right. Or, or the third person plural in French, for example, with the ENT at the end and... They've heard it many, many times, not pronounced that way, but then all of a sudden they see ENT and they start saying ENT at the end of every right. third-person plural. When you talk about proficiency, you're talking about, in this particular case, pronunciation. Right. Um, so not overall proficiency, but just the, the pronunciation aspect of their proficiency. Um, that is something that's been bandied about. Um, I don't know that anybody's officially studied that, but it is a good speculation that, that indeed that is what happens. I mean... You can see it all the time in what learners do. Or they meyamo, hear, and they, they heard meyamo a hundred times, and then all of a sudden they see it written, and they start saying meyamo. Or they hear hermano, 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 hermano all week long, and all of a sudden they see hermano and written, and all of a sudden it becomes mi hermano mm -hmm. with an H sound. Yeah, that happens. Um, so, um, but um, it does, I mean, it does, I mean, I mean, it, it, it does help to isolate elements at the beginning, so it has a plus side and a minus side, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Um but it's going to be very difficult to take people's literacy away from them as they're working on. Okay, we got a call coming in. 
Um, Bill. Oh, my God, my tocayo. You ever know what a tocayo is? A tocayo is somebody who has, shares your name or is named after you. So Bill from Indiana is calling. Bill, are you there? I am. How are you doing? Yep. Uh, we're doing okay. Are you still there? I just got a click on my earphone. Yep, I'm here. Oh, great. Are you calling from Indiana? What part of Indiana are you calling from? Uh, Southeast Indiana. Okay, so your weather probably is not as as yucko as our weather is today, right? No, it's a little rainy, but it's fine. Ugh, we're having that. We had snow this morning, and now it's turning to rain right now. And it's going to be raining mm. all afternoon, and then it's going to turn back to snow tonight. It's going to be just a slushy mess. But that's okay. That's our problem. What can we do for you, Bill? Yeah, okay, so what are you calling um, about? I had a question. It's not related to bootstrapping. That's quite um, all right. But I am having a little bit of a conundrum. Um, so I'm, we're being asked to collect data um, from formative assessments um, and to analyze the data. Now, if we are teaching towards acquisition, what... What kind of data would you suggest that we, uh, quote-unquote, analyze in order to inform our teaching and inform um, further facilitation of language acquisition? Um, I would recommend um, the if you're teaching toward acquisition and teaching toward proficiency and communication – then your formative assessments need to be some kind of tasks or can-do statements that are both input-oriented and output-oriented, depending on the level and what you think you are focusing on at that particular point in time. So um, you might have, for example, a formative assessment might be that at the end of Spanish 1, um, students should be able to perform the following input-oriented tasks. By input-oriented, we mean comprehension-interpretation-oriented right. tasks, right? Um, so they might be able to listen to X and, and determine Y. They might be able to hear, um, hear two sentences and, and match them to a picture or something. I mean, it depends on, again, it depends on the level and where you are. Um, so you want to go for meaning, what, what, what the language means, and you want to focus on interpretation. Um, but it might be that, that there are some tasks that could be output-oriented as well where you can find out, you know, where you focus on learners be able to answer with one or two words uh, in the following kinds of situations and you just list what they are. So um, it, it depends on the level. And I think what you need to do is is sort of, you kind of got to go by feel because nobody really does this. Um, and the stuff, the literature that's out there that I'm familiar with doesn't specify enough to make it fine tooth enough. Somebody might call and have a better idea than I do, but it doesn't make it fine tooth enough for you to do it like semester, term by term. Because you teach at the secondary level, Bill. Yes. Okay. So we, um, so my my issue is that we have to do them like they're supposed to be. Um, they're supposed to be formative assessments where they, um, like every month we're supposed to have right. something good. periodic. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's supposed to be every single month. Um, just doing a checkup because there are a couple teachers that teach the same class. We need to make sure that we're working towards the same goal. Um, so, right. I don't know. I had another question in there. But, and th um, this is where I think the task can help. So if you if you determine, like, if you have a task a month, by the end of this month, our students will be able to perform this task and okay. um, or these couple of tasks. And then people just work for those tasks. And you, you have your parameters 
So, you, you know, Walter and Angelica, or you and your co-teacher, for example, or your other teacher, um, you have different personality styles, different, might do somewhat different things in the classroom, but you're all headed toward the same goal to get the students to be able to do this task at the end. So um, that's how I would set it up. Um, but I think we, um, I, I think the, because I'm, I'm getting a little confused with, if we're working towards a task and that's like students will be able to do this task. So the formative assessment just needs to be working, sorry, um, the formative assessment just needs to be working towards that task. It doesn't need to be the task itself, correct? No, because you said something about data earlier, so I'm assuming you need to know right. how many people pass, how many people don't, and that kind of stuff. And so you need to have a task that you can actually give your learners to do to see how many, you know, how they perform on it. Um, so, um, so the task, the, 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 the task would be the formative assessment at the end of the period, the period of time that you're aiming toward. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I'm really just um, asking questions, not really for my clarification, but okay. I do really appreciate your input. Oh, no pun intended. And yes, <laughs> you're, that's great. Did you say you had a follow-up question, Bill? Before we let you go, did you say you had a follow-up question or another question? Um, I, I did, but I don't think it's pertinent to the conversation. So. <laughs> Try me. You never know. <laughs> oh, no, it's just it's just more of me ranting, so oh. I'm fine. All right. Thank you. Though. Well, I'll tell you what. Keep listening. If nobody calls in the next five or ten minutes, you can call in and, and rant or ask your question. How's that? All right. Okay. Thanks, right, Bill. Thank Have a great day. Stay Bye. dry. Okay. Bye, Bill. All right. Bye. Bye, Bye Bill. You know, Bill raises a really good point, um, and I've said this over and over again, and I'm not the only one who said this, but I talk to people all this time, and they go, how can we make change? And I say, Change your assessment, and the teaching will follow. Change your assessment, and the teaching will follow. Um, as long as people are headed toward a paper and pencil test, they're going to want stuff that makes them um, get prepares them for a paper and pencil tests. If the goal is the AP exam, people are going to want something that prepares them for the AP exam. If the goal is so, when you change these other assessments, when you change assessments to be something different, then you will work toward those. It's your fundamental thing we call um, we call it washback in language testing. You have a washback effect from assessment. So anyway, so that was a that was a good question. Even though it was had nothing to do with bootstrapping, it was a good question. See, we don't care. You don't have to talk about bootstrapping. Call us and ask us anything. All right, I'm going to do your SLA challenge question one more time to to get you all to um, to uh, win a prize here. And here it goes. Learners seem to isolate lexical verbs like eat, drink, and sleep. Before they get auxiliaries like be, have, and can. True or false? All right. And if you don't want It's 50-50 here, folks. It's 50-50. So. Yeah, you can't And miss. I bet you if you get it wrong, then Bill will still give you a prize. So <laughs> call on in anyway. That or you can be the next person with your finger on the phone ready to, okay, it must be the other answer now. <laughs> it's like on Jeopardy when there's like only two or three possible answers and one person gets it wrong, another yep. person chimes and gets it wrong, <laughs> and then it eliminates it for the third person who gets it right, right? It's the same kind of thing. So, All right. Um, okay. Oh my God, my stomach is killing me, you guys. Sorry about that. Uh, okay. God, people aren't even calling in to wish me well. How's, that's terrible. I know. Mm. I know. Oh, they've fallen out of love, Bill. They're going to miss me when I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> they are going to miss me when I'm gone. All right. Um, so, who can we talk about? Who's not here? <laughs> well, I was just going to add something. One of the things you've talked about in terms of 
uh, following up on what what Bill was just mentioning, the other Bill uh, is you know you've talked about how there are times when you have an, uh, a task at the end of you know a certain amount of time, but there are many tasks that kind of help form the end of the task. You've you've even mentioned you know a task where at the end they have to fill out a card about information on their partner, but yep. in the mean you know that's maybe the task at the end of the week, but but the but to get there they're doing little mini tasks to help be able to get little pieces of information and right so so that, i mean that's another step to building up to that task right mm-hmm. and I, what's interesting is i've been talking about this stuff for over 20 years um and i'm not the only person to be talking i think i'm the main person to be talking about it in me and jim lee in, in world language situations but this concept has been around for a long time and it's amazing not amazing to me but it's interesting how it's it just hasn't seeped in to the consciousness of language teaching um, in the United States. And I think it ought to. Um, and again, tasks can be whatever you want them to be. I think people have this idea that tasks mean you make the learners talk. And then you have people who are involved with input and go, I don't want to make the learners talk, just be listening. Well, a task can be an input-oriented task. It can be all kinds of things. Um, so anyway, um, Okay. Um, do we have a call? Com- I can't quite tell if we have a call coming through or not. So um, yep, we, we do. do. Oh, okay. Um, are you putting the call through, Jen? I can't tell. Is the call coming through? Ooh, it is coming through. Okay. Um, we have a call on the line. It's Myra. Myra. Yes. Hey, Myra. Where are you calling from? From Colorado. Hey, Myra from Colorado. I think you've called in before. I have. You were talking about bootstrapping today, and the first thing I thought of was Bootstrap Bill, who is a character from Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> movies. <laughs> bootstrap, bootstrap Bill. I've so never heard of Bootstrap Bill. Yeah, I thought I, maybe I have it wrong, but um, um, never heard I'm of that. It, never heard of that. <laughs> bootstrapping. So I will give a prize, you, by the way. I will give a prize, by the way, if people can. This is independent of our SLA challenge course. If anybody calls in today and knows um, who the people are um, in language acquisition, where this term comes from, um, because that gives people a point of departure for finding readings on their own. So anyway, if you want to call in and say, hey, I know who talked about that back in the 80s, because this, this, concept oh, been around gotcha. for, this, this concept's been around for like 30 years, so... Anyway, yeah, so. boot, Bootstrap Bill Turner is in the movie. It's Will Turner's dad, the ah. one that goes up missing. It's part of the ship. Oh, okay. That's who he is. I did not so know that. Bootstrap Bill. Bootstrap Bill. <laughs> All right, I'm going to watch that now. So, Myra, is that what you're calling in about to tell us about Bootstrap Bill? No, no, not at all, because it has, <laughs> to do with your, it has to do with your question, was what are strategies to help bootstrapping is what you asked initially when you went through right. what it is and how learners set up the boundaries and that kind of stuff. And it's been an issue back and forth. I remember talking with a, a Colombian who teaches Spanish, and she says, oh, I never slow down my speech. If they can't get it, then at full speed, they, I mean, they're never going to survive in that kind of situation. So we went back and forth, and she was very, very quick speaker in the first place, and so it made it very hard, um, but some of the things that I do to um, help the bootstrapping 
is TPR is uh, number one, mm-hmm. where you give gestures. Yeah. You put sounds to words. Yep. So you can um, say words like romantico in a romantic way, even though it's more of a cognate in Spanish. Those kinds of things help kids to bootstrap or, you know, connect the meaning immediately and, and chunk it, as you're saying, to, to right. really get the meaning first before you put it all together. Because, you know, Spanish in particular has so many vowels at the beginning and the end of the words that they just connect together. Exactly. So much. Yeah. The, the you know, German's a, little, German's a little bit different in that it there's more clear-cut, you know, ways of finding out what's the word. They just you know, put five together and make one <laughs> to kind of figure that one out. Um, well, the thing has to do, too, uh, the problem with, with, with this is one area where first language, uh, first language interference may play a role because prosody and syllable structure are all part of bootstrapping yourself into the system when you're hearing language, right? And so mm-hmm. um, Spanish and English, for example, don't syllabify the same way, nor does Japanese and English. Um, and so... Um, you may be used to trying to isolate word boundaries. You might be trying to use your word boundary information from English while trying to process Spanish or Japanese, and it's just not going to work because of the way what you were just saying, Myra, which is sounds. Syllables in Spanish are the end of one word become the, could become the beginning of another word in Spanish, the way syllables work. And so mm-hmm. um, and that's just the nature of the way Spanish syllabification works. So it's hard... Your Colombian friend is totally off a rocker, by the way. If you get this, this machine gun approach, machine gun approach to Spanish, you're not going to be able to isolate anything because all you're going to hear is a bunch of staccatic syllables. You're not going to be able to isolate words um, or boundaries between words because Spanish doesn't do that, for example. Nor does Jap- Japanese is it differently and Chinese is it differently. Um, so, so learners need help in the early stages, uh, second language learners. They need help um, because they don't have the means to do that yet. So your strategy, your TPR strategy is a good one, for example. Yeah, and a good a good teacher also knows those linguistic issues as well. For example, you were saying something about como se dice. Well, to a student, that just means what that word means is word um, is that's how I get to English. That's how I understand. It doesn't break down into how does one say, right? Nor the you know right. So the the one great example is that. I would always say back in the day, my class, saca una hoja de papel. So take out a sheet of paper. And I remember one of my students, she looked down and she goes, hey, Melissa, you have a saca una on the floor. And (laughs) which means you have a take out a sheet. She wanted to say you have a piece of paper on the floor. Right. But, you know, she included that whole, it's that whole piece that they're, you know, looking at. And so a good teacher also notices what words are having a conflict or interference in the first language and kind of avoids those a little bit or gives more support or doesn't teach them all together. For example, if you have words that kids really have a problem separating, um, then you want to teach those maybe on separate days or, you know, separate weeks even, you know, until they really get it down. A lot of teachers complain about my kids don't know the word has and want, which is kind of your, your um, question in the first place about eat drinks and mm-hmm. be, have, and can. Um, I think part of the reason is they're so abstract and they're so close in Spanish 
to a um, second language learner. Right. You know, and so they're confusing them back and forth, but yet they hear them so much, they're just all awash, you know. And and so really having that teacher who knows where they're having those issues and knows, oh, they're going to hear this word as soon as I say it. And so now I have to present it somehow, maybe in a visual way, before I just do it in kind of an auditory with no... Um, kind of scaffolding, like a visual scaffolding to it too. So there's there's a lot of things that, that I think that teachers do that is invisible right. and making more of those invisibles visible um, can help students also going, oh yeah, okay. They're not just going slow for this reason, but you know, there's a lot, of, a lot to this. So anyway. Right. Well, good. Well, thank you. Thank you for those insights. Those are all very good ones. And I think teachers do do stuff. Um, but it's but I think the fundamental point here is just to remind people that um, just because learners have learned a word um, doesn't mean they can isolate it in a speech stream when they're hearing it in the second language um, and for a variety of reasons. So um, it, 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 exactly, people exactly. Think, we- people think that because they've learned the verb puede in Spanish, for example, for he can or she can that they can hear that in the input all the time. They can't uh, for a variety of reasons, which I'm not going to get into right now, but yeah. so Exactly, and as soon as they learn that, then they know, oh, no, this means something different when you put it together with that word. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, so right. many things to do. Well, thank you for your time. All right, Myra, thanks for calling. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Right. Have fun. Bye, Myra. Tschüss, Myra. Hope she's having better weather in Colorado than we are here. <laughs> But the example, here's a good example that I just said with puede, with which segmenting. Okay, so Angelica doesn't speak Spanish. So she might hear this, if, um, but puede means he or she or it can or something like that, right? But notice what Spanish does with syllabification. So if I say um, he or she can be somewhere, that's puede and estar. When you come together, there aren't – there. Those that the ending of a of the puede and the end and the beginning of estar collapse, and you get puede estar. And so a learner hears that and does not hear puede. They don't know what they're hearing. They are they hearing puede and estar, or are they hearing puede and then estar, or are they hearing some new word? And they they because in their mind they've mapped this two syllable word puede in their lexicon, but it's now become a one syllable word in the speech stream. And that's what I'm trying to get across to people, that this, this, there's some really hidden things going on um, in, in any language, whether it's Japanese, Chinese, French. And unconsciously, we help them with that kind of stuff. But we often forget that every once in a while, not every once in a while, but more often than not, it slips by us. And students are struggling with a, a, a speech stream they just heard. And they kind of get the gist of the speech stream, but they're not isolating the elements just yet. Okay. Um, let's see here. Um, what do we got next? Um, Luca wants me to look at the Twitter press, but, um, let's see. Um, <laughs> Longinus says it's difficult for people to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps if they don't have any boots. Um, good point. Um, <laughs> most people had no idea what bootstrapping meant, so, um... Rachel says, I'm not sure how bootstrapping differs from creating a mental map of language. Both seem an organic process of subconscious categorization. And she's right. They are, it, it is a process of subconscious categorization. <laughs> but the point here, the point here is that, the point here is that um, 
what is that process? And the process is the isolation of units of meaning in the speech stream. Um, that's what's got to happen for learners. Okay. Um, Okie dokies. Meredith, you are hysterical. Why? What did Meredith do? <laughs> she created um, a, a nice little meme of you as Bootstrap Bill. Oh, wonderful. It is rather entertaining. Oh, I see myself now with a little pirate hat on. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Okay, um, let's see. We've got some calls coming in here. We've got a couple of calls coming in. They're lining up now. Not that the show is about to end in 15 minutes, but that's okay. We take our calls no matter what. We like them anytime. Um, so who's next? Who's on our docket here calling in? Um, let's see. We have Carol. Is Carol on the line? Carol's not on the line. Is Sean on the line? Sean's on the line. So what happened? We dropped the, we dropped the calls or something happened. Okay. I'm I have getting... a question. Go ahead. Totally unrelated to the topic, but Carmen was asking on Mixler, in an ideal scenario, but still within the constraints of an elementary school, so K-8, what would be the ideal frequency and duration of classes for acquisition? What can we do? It'd be How like, often? It would be like immersion and content-based learning. That would be the ideal thing. And since we can't do that in the constraints of an elementary school? No, but that's. I thought the question, what was the ideal? Correct. And I just said the ideal. <laughs> the ideal is, the ideal are immersion classes or dual language classes where you're learning, you know, half the day you're learning in one language and half the day you're learning in another language. Well, Carmen, there you have it. That's the ideal. Um, so, Yeah. Okay, uh, looks like we did have a call coming through. Um, is there a Sean on the line? This is. How you guys doing? Hey, Sean, how you doing? Where are you calling from? North Carolina. What part of North Carolina? Uh, Chapel Hill, Carborough. Okay, and I'm not no gonna snow there. And I'm not gonna do my bathroom joke with you, so I'm gonna drop that because I'm really upset with the state right now, and it's and it's law passing, but it's not your fault, so I'm not gonna. I'm not well, gonna, they fixed it, right? They did. They did not. They did not. Oh no. No, oh, okay. it's actually it's actually okay. just as bad as it was before. The only thing that's different is you can use a bathroom. Everything else that was in the previous bill oh, um, no. is still there. So yes. Oh my gosh! So they fixed the part that was the least bad and left all the right, right. Oh, so goodness. go check it out because you want to write to your people and get those things fixed. Okay. Of course I knew. Yeah. Anyway, so what are you calling about, Sean? What's up? Well, I. Uh... In, in light news, I told you guys Carolina was going to win the national title, and that's exactly what happened. Booyah. <laughs> um, Can I tell you something? You're talking to the least concerned person regarding basketball. No, I know. I'm just, I just felt like I'd put this on tape because I'm going to be analyzing this tape later for, right. uh, for my math project, so I felt like I did it. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and secondly, I, I heard you guys are going over bootstrapping, and it's a, it's a topic that I'm really interested in myself. And I heard you were talking about uh, the Puede Estar uh -huh. example earlier. And I had a teacher who, you know, that's the way that native speakers speak, but I had a teacher who was really good at helping us not get confused by stuff like that by really enunciating each syllable. So even if it was something like va a ver, which is va a haber, so you got three straight A's. She would say so when you just second, said that, I, I'm a speaker of Spanish. When you just right. said that, I was thinking you're saying going to see. Right. Va a ver. Va a ver and va a ver. Going to exist and then going to see sound the same to me in Spanish. Uh, literally the exact same pronunciation, yep. right? So to make those two things separated or to, to, to make us able to clearly understand that those two things were different, she would, you know, 
she would use the, the labial dental V, which is wrong, but it helped. <laughs> and then those of us who went abroad would get it fixed by going abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I mean, that might be a way to, even though it's a little bit non-native, for everybody to be able to follow along. And I mean, I know you guys are all about comprehension. So, and, and I agree with that idea in general. So I don't, I don't know if you think that crosses the line of, of going too far to make sure people can understand, or if it's something you think is a decent suggestion. I mean, you know, there, again, strategy, there are all different kinds of strategies and that can certainly help. I mean, I know, for example, with my students, um, I, um, just this today, for example, I said something and I realized I said it to them really, really fast. So then I stopped and I put in some pauses and some breath groups. And okay. I broke it down for them. Okay. And and then 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 the little light bulbs I could see you know above their heads after I reset it. Uh-huh. So but, you know, you can catch yourself talking too fast sometimes and, and these things uh-huh. and what you think they hear and what they hear are two different things. Um, and it's not just a it's not just a meaning mismatch like baver baver which which of those two meanings yeah. is it, but it could just be that they don't get the meaning at all, um, yeah. or the part that you think that they're getting they're not getting they're skipping over. So, interesting. Yeah, and how so, do we go ahead? How do we think on our feet to try to figure that out as we're teaching? Say that again, Sean. How do we how do we look for that confusion ourselves in our own students? It, it, it's hard. It's hard that you tend to you tend to see that more one on one because you get the back channel feedback from the other speaker, the other le- the learner, because he or she signals to you. So there's non comprehension. It's hard in a group of 24, 25, 30 students um, okay. because some of them, you know, and and this is why I think um, and and one of the one of the most interesting things about language teaching methods and language teaching courses about language teaching is everybody gets mm-hmm. one course, right? About right. language teaching and they go through all these different things. And I'm I'm beginning to wonder now if, if that's if that's appropriate, if a methods course is what should be happening. Um, I just wonder what would happen if you did an entire semester on how to speak in the second language to your students. <laughs> what right. what that would do for for student teachers who go into the classroom, give them some confidence that because most of them get no training on that, and that's the yeah. one thing that they need the most work on. So how is it that you start in Spanish or French or Japanese or Arabic the very first day, and how do you stay in it? What does it mean? And anticipating learner problems with <clears throat> comprehension. So um, yeah. But anyway, yeah. So and I can I can attest to the fact that as a non-native speaker who's built his second language up to a high enough level to fool somebody, (laughs) like it is hard to grade your language in a second language because you have to dial back something that you just spent a bunch of time drilling into your head. (laughs) I mean, you you could probably talk to Angelica about that too. Like how would she, you know, take her English down to a level that an ESL student would be able to really follow without feeling like she was in a weird place. Right, right, um, right. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Sean, so, I, have a, I have a question for you before we let you go. Um, nobody's called in about the SLA challenge question, so do you want to you take a stab at it? I didn't hear what it was. Oh, would you, would you like to hear it? Yes. Okay. It goes like this. Learners seem to isolate lexical verbs like eat, 
drink and sleep before they isolate or get auxiliaries like be, have, and can. True mm-hmm. or false? They tend to understand main verbs before auxiliary I, I, verbs? Isolate. They tend to isolate. They tend to isolate lexical verbs like eat, drink, and sleep before they isolate auxiliaries like be, have, and can. Is that true or false? I'm going to guess that that's true. Hey, yes. yay, ding, ding, Woo-hoo. ding, ding. Yay, Sean. Sean's going to get a big prize. Well, just, they're more key to the message. Well, not only that, but Bird. they're the things, first of all, don't, they carry stress. Remember we talked earlier about prosody? Yep. Well, you probably didn't hear it if you weren't listening. But they carry stress. Auxiliaries tend um, tend to have lower pitch and stress in the pro- prosodic contour of a sentence. So Walter can eat or Walter can drink. See right. the difference? The can right. in there doesn't have the same level of pitch contour. It doesn't rise in pitch and have stress the way um, drink and eat does in, that, in those two sentences. Um, do you have a banana? <laughs> I mean, right. banana right there draws your attention because it's the end of the sentence, and it's got this huge stress thing on it, whereas the do you at the beginning doesn't. Right. Um, and so so a lot of, lot of auxiliaries fall to the wayside because they aren't part of the major pitch contours of a sentence. And also, um, when learners are listening, it's easier to isolate, eat, drink, and sleep with meaning. I think that's what you were saying than yep. be, have, and can, for example. I mean, what's the meaning of be, have, and can? What's the meaning? Um, whereas eat, drink, and sleep, you can visualize those, right? So, yeah. Yep. So there you go. Okay, Sean wins a prize. Yay. Excellent. Okay, so someone's got to get Sean's information from Yay, him. Yay, Sean. Thank you, guys. You All right, it. Sean. Even thanks though he was put in. on the spot, you did it. Yeah, quite okay. impressive. Yep. Okay, thanks, Sean, for calling in. All right, all the best, okay. everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Sean. Bye-bye. Okay, um, and in fact, you know, in my in the model of info processing that I developed in the in the '90s, content words are the things that learners focus on before anything else in the input. And part of the reason is content words carry uh, major stress contours. Okay, uh, let me give the Diva Challenge question. We have a few minutes left. Maybe someone will call in the next five minutes with the answer to the Diva Challenge question and win a prize. Maybe that'll spark someone to call in. So here's the question. Ready, Walter Angelica? Are you listening? Yes, We're ready. we are. This TV screen diva used to describe herself not as a housewife, but as a domestic goddess. Who is it? Again, this TV screen diva used to describe herself not as a housewife, but as a domestic goddess. Who is it? Don't shout it out because we want to see if somebody calls in the next five minutes to get that. Hurry, hurry, call now. Hurry, call now, yeah. Well, people in Mixler know it. So they should be calling in. I'm not going to give a prize to someone who's mixed the rising. Okie dokies, already chokies. Oh, by the way, I forgot to bring the prizes in. Well, I'll have to mail them from, uh, I'll have to mail them tomorrow, Monday, when I come back in. Okay, nothing going on. In, uh, did we get any email, Walter? I've got an email here, yes. Oh, here it goes. There we go. Mary right. Poppins is back down. There you go. <laughs> it says, Aloha. This is Gina from Maui. Wow. I bet you there's no snow in Maui uh-huh. today. And she says, I was hoping I could call in today, but alas, I have to teach again. Blah. Okay, whatever. This is the person who gave Bill some chocolates that yeah, he was supposed gonna, to give to us. She's going to send you some chocolates. Okay, and keep going. Did she have a question? Us, okay, yeah. She said she's going to send us some Angelica. Nice. <laughs> um, teaching writing is an area that I've always struggled with. Can you please share some basic tips on how to bootstrap students when it comes to writing? For example, is it helpful helpful to give students questions and teach them how to use the question to write an answer? 
I'm just having a hard time wrapping my brain around how to help students with writing in the context of CLT. Communicative language teaching. Okay. Correct. A um, couple of things here. Um, one, writing develops as learners get written input. So they need to see texts. Whatever you want them to write about, they have to see texts that look like what they're going to write about. They have to have input on discourse structure. Um, so whatever we work works for grammar, vocabulary, everything else works for discourse and rhetorical devices and everything else. So um, that's number one. Number two, um, we don't use the term bootstrap to talk about bootstrapping yourself into writing. That's, a, that's just a, that's mixing apples and oranges. But that's okay. We don't fault you, Gina, for doing that. Um, and the third thing is that, again, I'm going to go back to tasks. Um, what do you mean by writing? Writing to me means you have a purpose to writing. It's a communicative act. So why are they writing and what are they writing about? Other than are you making them write just to write? Or is it something that actually is part of a task of the communication of information? Um, and so if you have a task that they're engaged in and they have a writing for a purpose to communicate information, then, <coughs> excuse me, my gosh, then um, you will, you will it, it'll become clearer on how to treat writing. I think maybe we should do writing hmm. on a show yeah. in yeah. The next that week or two. Okay, maybe we'll put that on the, the docket for next week or two. Okay, we have the, somebody on the line. Ooh, somebody on the line about the Diva Challenge question. We got like two minutes left. Okay. Teresa, you're on the line. Hi. Hey, Teresa, how you doing? You calling from New Orleans? I am. Yay. Yes. So you're calling about the Diva Challenge question? Yes, I am. Well, there you go. First, tell me one thing about yourself before I give you the question again. So are, do, you, do you teach, what level do you teach at? I teach Spanish at the high school level. At the high school level. You teach all levels of Spanish? I teach levels one, two, and three. Okay, good for you. Well, we always like to know a little bit about the people who call. Okay. All right. Awesome. Um, Here's the Diva Challenge question. This TV screen diva used to describe herself not as a housewife, but as a domestic goddess. Who are we talking about, Teresa? Roseanne Barr. Yay! Yay. Yes. Got it. Yes, she Excellent. Is. There we go. Interesting person. All right, yeah. Teresa. Well, your present, your prize, whatever you want to call it, your free giveaway will be winging its way to you in the next couple of days. Okay? Perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks, Teresa. Thanks for, Thanks for calling, calling Teresa. in. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, gosh. The time is almost there for us to say goodbye. Time and no offense to my audience and to you two, but I am so tired. I gotta, <laughs> I've got to. I tell you, this thing is wiping me out. I, don't I know would I'm, never have guessed that you were tired. Oh, Walter. You well, hopefully me. next week you will be all better. Hopefully. Okay, so here go my acknowledgments. Walter, don't look at me like that. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm looking the opposite direction. <laughs> okay. As usual, we thank our technical producer, Daniel Trago. Hey, Daniel, smiling at me through the glass window there. Thank you, Daniel, for all the work you do. Our media producer, Luca Giapponi, who's back in the saddle. He was out for a couple of weeks here and there, traveling and then ill. And so now he's smiling at me through the glass case as well. Our talented and trusted intern who's handling all the calls today, uh, Je uh, Jennifer Lee. And her sidekick, our muscle man and all-around guy, <laughs> Dustin DeFelice, who's so important to us. Um, the, uh, we like to thank the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, especially our dean, Christopher Long. Hey, Chris, how you doing? As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And, of course, we want to thank all of you listeners out there as well, especially you people who called in. Thank you for yeah. calling us. 
We'll be back next week. Maybe we'll talk about writing next week. Maybe we'll talk about something else. Who knows? I'll figure it out in the next day or two, and we'll send you out a message. Until next week, have a great weekend. Hope your weather's better than ours. And of course, happy second language acquisition to everyone. Say goodbye, folks. Auf Wiedersehen. Bis nächste Woche. Yeah, what she said. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm going to go home and go to bed. Uh,